0: invite you to turn to First Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. I'm returning to First Peter after a couple months of assisting Carl in the solas, and before that we took a brief break looking at prayer. In this text, we will see the keys to the good life. The keys to the good life. The Declaration of Independence describes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as one of the inalienable rights God has given to man. And for most, the pursuit of this happiness means chasing after entertainment, money, fun, rewarding jobs, adventure, vacation, sports, and so on and many will search for their gratification through a more baser shall we say hedonistic means promiscuous sex drugs alcohol life of wanton unlimited unaccountable freedom and the thought the intent the hope is that these tools that deliver temporary rushes that temporarily satisfy the heart of men will make them content with their life. That's the thought. That's the hope. That's the assumption. But the truth is, is that they are looking for the good life in all the wrong places. Scripture tells us that Solomon was the most privileged man in history who sought after the good life, and he pursued it with a vengeance. He had everything. He had vast lands. He had endless wealth. He had beautiful women. He had a big house. He had shiny chariots. He had fast horses. He had Mustangs before Ford made them. He had more gold, more silver, more bronze, more stuff then he knew what to do with. He was so privileged. He had so much that when another royal figure, the Queen of Sheba, visited him, and she looks at all that he has, one who was already accustomed to being very privileged and having an abundance, she was left utterly breathless. Solomon was very privileged and he had acquired a lot and he did a lot so solomon was a happy man right was he he was a content man right his heart surely his heart was satisfied right were his days good days what did solomon love his life what do you think after explaining in the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes how he sought to satisfy himself through all the means at his disposal, through money, through business venture, through sex, through his hobbies and crafts, through philosophy, through all that a man could do. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, so I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility, and finish it, striving after the wind. And he would go on to say in 4.13, So I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living, but but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed. Who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. What a miserable way to look at life, huh? What a miserable way to look at one's own life. Now, as we turn to First Peter, Peter has a very different scripture on his mind that prompted him to write today's text. And the text that he was studying was Psalm 34, 12 to 16 this this psalm speaks of the goodness of God and speaks of the richness of his graces that are made evident that are practically felt practically seen in the lives of those that he blesses and because Peter wants his audience to experience that goodness that same richness of life he inspired he was inspired to write four admonitions to appropriate the good life as we abide, as we walk, as we live in this unchristian world. Four keys to live by if we desire life and want to live to see good days. He says, beginning in verse 8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you, will, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I said there were four keys. First one is in verse 8 that's the key attitude. The key attitude to have. Verse 9 is the key response we are to have. Verses 10 and 11, we find the key standard we are to abide by. And verse 12, the key incentive to have tucked away in our mind. The key attitude, response, standard, and incentive. And he begins in verse 8 saying, to sum up. Now this is a conclusion of something that Peter has been saying, something he's been talking about, and and since Chapter 2, verse 12, what he's been talking about is the Christian's conduct and what it should be in this unchristian world. Peter says that Christians are to have an excellent conduct, a to say it another way, a noble behavior, a worthy, a very good, a commendable, a desirable manner about oneself that for sure is approved by God but the standard is to even have your conduct be approved and desired and found to be valuable and good and faultless even by the unbelievers that's the call and he gave us those marching orders for our walk in this world and he ele- he would go on to elaborate how as a christian as a raised man with as, as a man raised with christ as a woman raised with christ we have that excellent behavior. We are, we are to have that excellent behavior in three basic spheres of relationships. In chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, he says that as a Christian citizen, we submit to the authorities that God has put in power over us, whether it's the president, whether it's the governor, whether it's your local sheriff. Christians recognize the God-given authority to these offices And they honor God by giving those public servants respect through their submission. That was in verses 13 to 17 and then 18 to 25. As a Christian employee, and you can call yourself a slave if you want. Some some managers get a kick out of that. As a Christian employee, we are to submit to our supervisors or our managers. And again, sometimes they like being called master. Even the harsh ones, that's the the call. It's easy to to, to submit to a a master you love, but the call is to submit and show respect even to the harsh ones. Submit even to them. And and then we got over to chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. We finally get to marriage and how the Christian wife is to submit to her husband even if he's an unbeliever, even if he doesn't pull his share around the house. Even if he doesn't do enough to earn her respect. As a Christian wife, her duty is to show respect through her submission. And the man's not left off the hook. Or maybe he's still on the hook. I don't know if I used that idiom right. But his duty is to show respect to her. or to, to show his affection, his compassion, his consideration to her, even if she is difficult to live with, even if she is impossible to live with, if she spurns him, if she is mean, if she's bitter, if she's difficult, if she's distant, he is still called to be selflessly loving and considerate and warm and affection. Why? Because at the end of the day, she is still his lifelong companion. I love that, that phrase in verse 7. She is your heir in the grace of life. And that's, that's marriage. What a beautiful way to describe marriage, the grace of life. And now Peter says, to sum it up, to, to sum all this up, some of your translations may say finally. And some of you have learned that when a pastor says finally, it really doesn't mean anything. But but finally, to sum it all up, and and, and who's he addressing? All of you, which includes me. This is the whole church, the whole bunch, the whole lot. He says, as it were, let me sum it up, all y'all. Be about these things. Do these things. And he begins with the key attitude to have. That attitude is comprised of five virtues in in verse 8. Let's look at these. The key attitude. He says, all of you be harmonious, harmonious sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Oh, the first one, harmonious. I think all of these are compound words. This literally means same think, to, to think the same thing. And it, it, what it doesn't mean, it, it's not talking about having it, making sure that your thoughts are, are carbon copy or cookie-cutter copies of the Christian next to you. But what it means is that there there ought to be a like-mindedness. There ought to be a a, a unity in the manner of our thinking, in the way of our thinking. And it means we ought to find value. We ought to find encouragement in the same convictions, that we ought to be united and committed to the same truths, like-minded. Christians ought to have a concerted, a concerted grounding and exercising of what we stand in, what we believe, and what we cherish. I used to be in a barbershop quartet, and from time to time, I, 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 back in high school, so no, it's been a while, but from time to time I'll listen to some video, some uh, barbershop, barbershop quartet music videos on YouTube, and a couple years ago there was this phenomenon that came about where musicians could... You know, use video recording and editing, and they could become uh, one dude could become his own quartet. And I was fascinated when I saw this. And if you has anyone not seen, not know what I'm talking about? Okay, so one guy records himself, and and first he you know he plays the bass and he records himself down here singing all these notes, and then he does the baritone and where he's he's in this range, and then and then he does the tenor, and then for the high tenor, he plays much higher than I can go. But what he does, you know, in each part, if you were to watch each cell, each portion of the video, it, it would be good. It would He would be a good bass, a good baritone, a good tenor, a good high tenor. But when they come together, when they are all played in unison, the music becomes absolutely beautiful. It is so impressive. It just, it wows me. This call to harmonize acknowledges that we are crafted, we are made differently, we have different perspectives, we employ different methodologies, we we approach things differently than others, but nevertheless, we can harmonize and we can come together in our thinking, especially as it concerns the truth of God, He reveals in the Bible. And Peter is saying, It begins in your mind, it begins with your attitude be harmonious be harmonious the body of christ is already a beautiful thing it is already a beautiful thing and that beauty becomes visible it becomes even tangible even to the unbeliever when we harmonize on the truth and when we each play our concerted part our jointly arranged our cooperative, coordinated part to play in this grand opera that is God's design, which is the church. It's a beautiful thing. Peter says, all of you, be harmonious. And that all of you applies to each virtue. The second, all of you, be sympathetic. This is another compound word, sign and pathos. Sign with pathos to, to suffer, to suffer with, to suffer alongside, to suffer because another is suffering. You know, while, while I was looking up stuff like all this musicy stuff about harmonizing and everything, I, I discovered this thing called a sympathetic string. Daniel, you know what that is? A sympathetic string. Do I know something you don't? Maybe. Yes. So let me. <clears throat> Okay, so there are these things called sympathetic strings. And they're, um, I, I looked these up, and there's about 200 instruments, and they all look like guitars. I, I clicked on one. And I was like, well, that looks like a guitar. And I clicked on another one. That looks like a long, skinny guitar. I looked at That one looks like a dwarfed guitar. It, but they're all, they're all these stringed instruments. And a sympathetic string is a string that's on some that you don't actually play the sympathetic string. You play the, the, the primary strings. And because the sympathetic strings are so close to each other, the reverberations, the the frequency, the waves from the primary string will cause the second string to reverberate. It's sympathizing. It's suffering with the first... Well, depending on... Maybe if I played it, it would be suffering. (laughs) But I thought, what a great picture. What a great picture of sympathy. Hurting when others are hurting, rejoicing when others are rejoicing, when, 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 when someone else gets the good news, when they are blessed, even if, especially if you don't happen to be feeling particularly blessed at the moment. This means not feeling envious, not feeling jealous if perhaps someone around gets blessed with something that you have been really praying for or really want. Sympathy is, is, is able to rejoice with them. In that moment, it also means hurting with them when they are hurting, grieving with them when they are grieving, feeling pain when they are in pain, feeling their pain. It's not, it, it's not being like the looky loos that you see on the road when 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 someone drives by an accident and they slow down. They're like, oh, what's going on? Oh well, off to work. Sympathy is being sensitive enough to stop to make a connection with someone else. And helping them any way you can. And what I've discovered. Is that sometimes the best thing we can do to help a grieving person. Is to simply be there. And not say anything. Sometimes. Proverbs 15.23 says. There is joy in an apt answer. How delightful is a timely word. There are there are certainly occasions to counsel. To admonish. To encourage with words. But. There's an an erroneous presumption that, that you have to say something when someone's grieving. And sometimes just being there. And as it were, taking some of the load of that grief that is so heavy in that moment upon yourself just by being there is what someone needs. All of you, be sympathetic. The third virtue is brotherly. And this is another compound word. Philia, love, and Delphoi is a brother. And this is actually emphatic because philia has this idea of kin or brotherly within it. So it means brotherly, brotherly love. It may be bromantic. I don't don't know if that works or not. There are four different ways to express love in Greek. and, And this phileo, this speaks of love that comes out of naturally occurring relationships. There are, there's love that, that can develop between people because you're drawn to them or they're drawn to you. That's not this. This is, this is um, a good inclination, a favor, and maybe even affection that you develop because you are in pro- close proximity with someone by happenstance. This is, this is the kind of uh, love that's developed between siblings. I know some of you didn't choose the people that were that were your brothers and sisters, but they're your brothers and sisters, so you've got to deal with them. And eventually you grow to love them. This is the, the, the kind of relationship that forms between soldiers who come from all walks of life, and they train together, and they march together, and they eat together, and they bunk together. Phileo sees that one is, is present among equals and peers, and Phileo Believes you ought to treat others the way you want to be treated. So all of you have this brotherly, brotherly or, or sisterly love. The fourth is kind-hearted. And I've been, I've been, I've been waiting for this because this is my favorite Greek word. It's my favorite Greek word. It literally, it, the word is you splachna. The you is good or healthy. Splachna means the guts. The viscera, the, the bowels, the intestines, all of you have good guts. Now, see, the reason why he uses this word is that the ancients thought that the heart and the mind, the you know, they're up here, they're they're more reasoning, they're more logical, they're like Spock, you know, whereas the guts, the inner man. This is where you feel strongly. This is where you feel deeply. This is where you're more instinctive. The heart's more discerning. It's a little less bodily. But the guts is where you feel and you know. You know what is true and what is good. You know that deep down. That's the guts. And being kind-hearted means being compassionate. It means being tender. tender Hearted. it's it's hard it's a will that's sensitive to the needs of others it's it refuses to turn cold it refuses to turn calloused it refuses to become cynical it refuses to become cold when it's abused when it's scorned when it's reviled when when it's spoken ill of and sometimes even Christians can do that to one another huh sometimes. This is an attitude that desires to serve the needs of others before the needs of the self. And it would feed and clothe even a cold, starving enemy because deep down inside it it, it knows that that's the right thing to do. So all of you have healthy guts. Be kind-hearted. I won't, I won't say the other one again. Be kind-hearted. Lastly, humble in spirit it means humble-minded. The last compound word, humble-minded. This is a lowliness of mind. It it doesn't seek recognition. It doesn't look for accolade. It doesn't uh, look for reward, for prestige. It's not selfish or conceited. It's not grasping or, or striving for more. Instead, it is content. It is content and satisfied with where it is with what it's been given. Humility is being unprovoked when you're mistreated. Humility is not responding with coarseness or vulgarity or rudeness. And humility doesn't demand for its rights to be recognized. I think perhaps the most vivid illustration of this is seen in Philippians 2 when Paul says that Christ being God put that aside he didn't consider his godness his deity his divinity something that he had to hold on to for, for, for fear of losing it but he set it aside and he came here in the form of a slave in the form of a man of a bond servant and he didn't demand to be worshipped he didn't demand to be served and obeyed but rather he came as a servant, he died the most humiliating death ever on a cross. That's humility. That's humility. And that's what we're to be. So, Christian, the first key to obtaining a happy life, to to to, to live the good life, to see good Days is to have a truly Christian attitude that is evident to all by being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. That's the first key, is, comp- is living by those virtues. Second key is found in verse 9. That's the key response. He continues, not returning evil for evil or Insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, being ready to do the right thing at the right time requires preparing yourself to rightly respond. I remember a friend of mine who was a, a sergeant, and he would tell—he uh, was a SWAT sergeant. He would tell me how they would train and train and train and train and train. With their with their weaponry and their firearms, and they would train in pulling and aiming at just the right vital spot, and and, and firing, so that when the moment came, when a threat presented itself, that their reaction was, was near instantaneous. It was um, it was almost involuntary. there's no thought that that goes into well, I need to pull my firearm because someone's about to shoot me. It was they were prepared. They were ready. And the response, again, it was near instantaneous without thought. They were prepared and ready to respond in that moment. What's our moment? What, what moment is Peter telling us here? This is the moment when evil is committed against you. When you're slandered. When you're maligned. When you're mistreated. When you're gossiped against. that ever happened to anybody here? Anyone ever gossip against against you? Anyone ever slander you? When so, when you're sinned against, when you're wronged against, mistreated, and and that moment where all you see is red, blood pressure goes up, the pulse elevates. You want you want to get your pound of flesh back. When you're wronged, when evil befall, befalls upon us, when the authorities sin against us, when the government takes advantage of us through unfair taxes, when judges fail to exercise justice, when our superiors sin against us, when it's not fair in the workplace, when there are double standards, when people who don't deserve to be promoted and, and elevated up the ladder get promoted and elevated up the ladder, When our own spouses sin against us, that never happens, does it? The key response to have the Christian thing to do is to not retaliate, but be gracious. Be gracious. Instead of returning that evil back upon their head, giving them what for, showing them a thing or two, giving them what they really deserve, give them a blessing instead the Christian thing to do. This is the very principle Jesus tells his followers to employ in Matthew 5. Matthew 5:38 5, uh, You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt. Let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven a standard what a response we're supposed to have and he himself was the supreme example of this attitude do you remember what Peter said in chapter 2 verse 23 flip over to that Jesus while being reviled what what does it say in verse 23 First Peter two, verse twenty three. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He exemplified. Our Lord, our Savior, exemplified what he tells us to do rather than return evil for evil. Rather than return insult for insult be like our Lord. Let's be like Jesus. Take the evil and the, and the insults graciously and humbly and return upon the heads of those that malign us with not curses but with blessings. Well, how, how can we do that? Well, Jesus actually just gave us two, two of those ways. I'll repeat them and then give you a third. One, we can love them. We can Respond to them with love, with agape love. That's the love that doesn't begin with their worthiness to be loved. This is love that begins with our determination to love. and This is the love that God showed us when we were, when we were unloving, unlovable, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And sins. Second, we can pray for them we can pray that they might repent of their sins and receive God's grace and be saved just like we were. If they're already saved, pray that they grow in their sanctification and repent while we remember that sometimes we sin against our fellow Christians too. Third, we can forgive them. We can forgive them. Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 18, he would, this would be a teaching moment for Peter. I'm sure he remembered this quite vividly. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? See, the Jews had this, this custom that you only had to forgive someone three times. You're only obligated to forgive someone three times. After that, oh, you could, you could the law could fall on them. And so he, he doubles it and he adds one, thinking, hey, he look at me. I'm being pretty gracious. Aren't I awesome? Shall I forgive him seven times? Jesus said to him, no, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times. Seven. I'm sure Peter's jaw dropped. For this reason, he tells a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, One who owned him 10,000 talents, far more than you will ever see in this life, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had and, and payment to be made. And the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself, saying, Have patience with me, I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owned him a hundred denarii, a couple, couple days' worth, maybe a, a couple weeks' worth of pay, pittance, pennies compared to the 10,000-talent debt. And he seized him and began to choke him and saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, and we've heard this before, right? Have patience with me. I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And went and threw him in prison until he paid back what was owed. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened, and they were deeply grieved, and came reported and came and reported it to their Lord all that happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus concludes, my heavenly father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. For us to fail to respond like this, to show love and grace and forgiveness towards those who wrong us, makes us exactly like that wicked slave. We cannot live by that double standard. Why not? Well, Peter follows up with some doctrine. He says, for or because you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit or receive a blessing. In other words, you have received the blessing of having this incredibly insurmountable, never paybackable debt you have been graciously cleared of that. It's been wiped free from your account by the thrice holy God. And the least you could do, the least I can do, the least we can do is show some modicum of that grace to one another when we're wronged, when we're, especially when we're wronged by a much more temporary, much, more, much less heinous offense. That's the least we can do. As, as those who have been forgiven, we can forgive others. The key attitude, harm a harmonious, loving, sympathetic, kind hearted humility, and the key response, which is grace. And in verses ten and eleven, we see the key standard. The key standard, he says. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and he must pursue it. Pursue it. Why should a Christian be concerned with having that key attitude and having that key response? Because the Christian standard is to fall back and stand firm on the word of God. And the word of God says he must have that attitude and that response. Now, Peter could have Peter could have had some options here. He could have uh, appealed to common sense. He could have appealed to philosophy. And maybe he could have found a fortune cookie that echoed th- this sentiment. But Peter's standard is to appeal to the scriptures. And for him... This would have been the Old Testament scriptures. The God-breathed word that Paul says is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You see, people tend to place a lot of stock, and they tend to trust, and they tend to run with the words and opinions of the elite, of the experienced, of the privileged, of the wise of those who have done incredible things and, and, and seen, seen incredible things and gone incredible places. And you, you just go down to the grocery store and look in the magazine rack, and you can see this. Now, Peter, he's one of the 12. He's not just one of the 12. He's the leader of the 12. He's walked, He walked with Jesus for three years, and you know, considering uh, how many people deserted him, you know, he, he did pretty good staying with him all the way up to the end. He's now an apostle. He's now a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He could have commandeered the respect of many in the church. He could have given his opinion. And people would have ran with him simply because of who he was. Simply because of how big his name was. Peter the Rock. And not only that, think about the fact that he was one of the three. He was one of the three Who was with Jesus on the mountain? They heard the voice of the Father. They saw Moses, they saw Elijah, and they saw the glorified Christ. They saw well, they saw a preview. It's like it's like Jesus pulled back, and you see, you know, instead of seeing the Superman, you see God's Shekinah glory emanating from Him. It was so amazing; He was stupefied. Peter could have used, I think, those credentials to really wow the people. He would have had he would have had hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. He would have had people liking his status updates all the time. And in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, he talks about that mountaintop experience. He said, and he says that in verse 19, in contrast to that amazing experience that he would never forget, he says. But we, which includes his readers, we have the more sure prophetic word. I have my experiences, and sure, those are great, and those are edifying. Those are great to to, to remember and think about. But you have the more sure prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Someone who's out walking on a trail and night, uh, night falls, and you can't see anything, and he, he he has a torch, he has a flashlight, and he doesn't use it, is a fool. Peter says you would do well to turn the flashlight on and use it. In other words, he's saying don't take my word for it just because I've been around the block, or, uh, uh, block and seen a thing or two. You have the word of God. That is all you ever need to know the truth of God because it's his word it is more sure it is more reliable it is more trustworthy than any experience that a man tries to sell you don't follow after men and their experiences their visions follow after the word that's the key standard that's the key standard and the word referenced here by Peter is Psalm 34 particularly verses 12 to 14 and he's and it's addressing the one who desires life, who who desires to love, who wants to love and to see good days. And there are two words for life in the Greek. One is bios, biology, this is physical life. Someone who has bios life, their heart's pumping. But there's also zoe, which is the experiencing of the richness of life. This is this is experiencing. And being satisfied in the goodness of life. You know, remember Braveheart when he's in the prison at the end and the, 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 princess, the French princess is trying to get him to, to say something so that he could be free. Uh, and if you don't, you'll die. And you remember that iconic phrase? Every man dies. Not every man truly lives. That's, that's, this is the idea of zoe. That's truly living. And he who wants to truly live, he must keep himself, he must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. It would, it would appear with just a surface level look that all you've got to do is make sure you don't say anything bad, right? All you got to do is make sure that, you, that your mouth is guarded and nothing mean comes out. As long as no evil comes across your, your lips, as long as no deceit crosses your tongue, you're good, right? That's all you got to do. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than just training yourself to say, be careful little lips what you say. Because if if all we do is condition ourselves to have an external response, we become nothing more than Pavlov's Pavlov's dog. The call is to put what the Word of God says in, in us and change from within. And we've looked at this before in chapter 2, 22, and 23. We saw that the lips serve as the window. The lips are the gateway to the soul. What, what is on the lips, what comes out of the mouth, is what's in the heart. And you can see Jesus expound on that in Matthew 12, 34 to 35, and, and 15, verse 18. And here, in verse 11... Peter is using the the psalmists next line to explain what he means. He's he's explaining and illustrating what he means when he says to love life. He he, he provides the negative imperative in verse 10. You can see that he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That's what you be sure not to do. Now he provides a complimentary thought in verse 11, saying what you are to do. He says, turn away from evil and do good. This is repentance. That's repentance, folks. Turning away from evil and doing good. It's Having a change in your mind that results in a change in what you do. And then there's another complementary thought. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now, isn't that a tough thing to do? To, to, when we're wronged, when we're mistreated, do we, do we seek peace? Do we pursue it? Do, I mean, pursuing has the idea of, of relentlessness. You are going after it. You're hiking your pants up, and you're, you are sprinting after it. You are pursuing it. I think we can be content to give up after a paltry, a paltry attempt. Say, "Oh well, tried to reason with the fella." No, pursue peace. Pursue it even at great cost, if need be. And Paul gives this sharp rebuke to the Corinthian church in First Corinthians six one to eleven that some Christians had even drug other Christians before court, before pagan unbelieving judges because they wanted their pound of flesh. They want their recompense. Paul says, it's already a defeat for you that you're doing that. Why not better be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, graciously take the hit and get on with your life. So seek peace in your conflicts because that's what Scripture tells us to do. And Scripture is the key standard to live by. The, The last Key is the key incentive. Key attitude, key response, key standard. Now the key incentive, verse 12. For or because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. I love this next line. And his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil now anyone read that and see the eyes of the Lord sound that sound a little intimidating at first like anyone remember their mom and saying I'm watching you anyone have a teacher that say my eyes are you know my eyes are on you I'm watching you that that's that's th- this is a favorable thing this is a good thing and Peter's use of this psalm is to encourage you and me to pursue good works and peace and upright living in light of God's good inclination, in light of his good favor towards you and me. And this is how we know that for sure. He's already used it before, and now it, the psalmist is using this Hebrew uh, poetic tool called parallelism. He, he provides a parallel syntax and a parallel disjunction to explain what he means. The author will he will say something, and then he will say it again. Or he'll say something again to emphasize what he just said. And he'll say it again using different words to to, to strengthen, to illustrate the first clause, and that's a complementary, that's that's the parallel syntax. It is, it is reinforcing, it is strengthening, it's clarifying, it's, it's illustrating what he just said by saying it again in a different way. Or he will contrast it with the opposite idea or with the opposite image. That's the disjunctive. And this this is a literary device that is, it is so common in Hebrew. It is really hard to miss if you read the Psalms and the Proverbs. You'll read something about the righteous man, da 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 da, da but the wicked, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Usually that word, but, tells you it's a disjunctive. And he's already done this in verse 10 and 11. And now he says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he couples it. Do you see him building it with another clause that means the same thing? Do you see that? His eyes are toward the The righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. Those are both favorable things. Those are complementary phrases. And then here's the disjunctive. Here's, Here's the contrasting statement. And he uses a but. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know what that means? That means that when God's people bring their concerns... When they bring their requests, when they pray, when they plead with Him, because they're being wronged, because they're being hurt, because they're being maligned, because they're being persecuted, because they're frustrated, because they're hurting, it means that God doesn't turn a blind eye. It means that He's listening. It means that He is moved to act Favorably, favorably to those who approach him in their time of need. And so having his eyes toward the righteous, it means God is favorable. He, he has a goodly inclination towards those that pursue and seek after and live a life marked by peace and repentance and those who pursue harmony and brotherly love and kind of Uh, heartedness and sympathy and humility and good works. Why should the Christian be motivated to pursue these virtues, especially when it's going to cost him? Why should he prepare himself to respond like this when it takes great effort? And frankly, it's often very humiliating. It can be very costly. Why should he invest himself in the scriptures that command ourselves to deny ourselves? Doesn't that go against what every fiber of our being tells us? What every fiber of of the societal being tells us? You should be all you can be. No, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Why should we invest ourselves in these scriptures? Because God is looking out for you. Do you believe that? Do? You? Thank you. Do you believe God is looking out for you Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church? You don't need to worry about getting your recompense when you're wronged. God is your supply. God is your portion. God is your avenger. We don't have to worry about making every wrong right. God has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. As for you, his eyes are toward you in kindness, and his ears attend to your prayers. What an incentive. What an incentive. So whether in Peter's day or today, Christians have always had to live in this hostile world, in this sometimes just so infuriatingly frustrative world. But we can be blessed by adopting this Christ-like attitude, by living humbly before the world and harmoniously with one another. When we're mistreated, we can bless those who mistreat us by responding with Christ-like gentleness, with self-control, and even loving them, even praying for them even though it's tough, even forgiving them. Anyone ever find out find that they've had to forgive someone for the, like I, I thought I already forgave them for that, but I guess I'm still bitter over it. I, I need to give it to God and just forgive them again and move on. I, I've had to do that. And we do all this while adhering to God's word as the definitive standard for our faith and practice. And as we do that, we can and we will be encouraged that God is watching over us favorably. He has set His kindness and His love upon us. Don't you believe He will lead you through trial and suffering? He gives the grace we need to endure We don't have to worry about our recompense. We don't have to worry about getting our pound of flesh. Because he's promised one day to right every wrong, to be our avenger, and to bring true justice to the earth. Didn't we read that in in this morning's Revelation passage, that God, it was time to act and destroy those who destroy the earth? God God will bring vengeance at the right time. That's not nothing we have to worry about. God we ask that you would help us to put on the mind of Christ that you would help us to be harmonious help us to be sympathetic help us to be kind hearted help us to be humble help us to respond to suffering and hardship and pain with grace Help us to remember the grace that You gave to us and by Your strengthening, help us to distribute grace to others. Guard our mouths. Guard our minds. Guard our eyes. We thank You that Your Word is sure, more sure than anything else that we've been given. and We thank You for the reminder that you're watching out for us, that you will take care of us, that you will shepherd us, that you will protect us and guide us and lead us, and that you will provide for us. Help us to be mindful of these truths. Help us to apply them for your glory. Amen.